kind of throw things around a little bit this morning. Shane was supposed to preach, uh, but he's been quite unwell. Um, and uh, Paul Flavel, uh, very graciously um, accepted the invitation to come and speak this morning at the last minute. And so um, Paul, uh, I met Paul through, actually through uh, Winepress Church where he was involved in the pastoral team there. Uh, our kids absolutely love Paul. He was their youth uh, pastor at the time. And uh, Paul and I also did our masters at table together. And uh, Paul is now uh, involved at uh, TIA Australia, uh, involved in... I'm not quite sure, but he will, it's all good stuff. Um, I do appreciate you, Paul, coming in last minute, and let's give him a warm welcome this morning. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. And uh, it was quite a moment on Thursday when I got the, when I got the phone call from Steve to say, uh, could I come and preach? It was quite a moment, actually, for, for a few reasons, and, and one of those reasons, I'm going to sit down for a bit, I like that about this place. Um, one of the reasons why it was a bit of a moment was I'd actually not, I've not preached anywhere for nearly a year, which for a lot of you wouldn't be a big thing. For me, it kind of is because for a decade before that, I would preach at least once a week somewhere um, as a pastor in Melbourne last four years and then in the UK in, in various capacities before that. So to sort of get a call on the, on the Thursday afternoon and I've not sort of preached for a year and I was so, but... The reason I said yes is partly because I love Steve and I love the Suttons, but it was also because this church here that you're all part of is actually has become, strangely, a, a slightly significant church for me, and that's quite strange because I've only been here once before, and I was here you know, a few weeks ago. This is a wonderful church. You should feel very blessed to be part of this church. Don't take it for granted. Don't think of it too lowly. Don't think of it too highly. It is just a church. It has its faults. It has its problems. I don't know what they are, but they'll be there. If you think of it too highly, then you'll fall too hard. It's a church. It's messy. It's broken. And it's beautiful. And so I encourage you to embrace it. Um, and so that's why I'm here, back in the saddle and loving it, making a fool of myself already. Uh, I work for Tia. Um, hands up here, anyone who has heard of Tia before? Oh, yes, come on, this is the choir. So, TIA, if you don't know, TIA is an uh, international NGO that uh, does uh, poverty alleviation. Um, we try to do it with the poorest of the poor in complex situations, in complex places around the world. We work with local Indigenous partners on the ground um, who know the community, who can do holistic community development where they are. Uh, and so we support those local partners wherever they are. And, and they are in difficult places. They are in uh, South Sudan, Defoe. They are in Afghanistan. They're in complex political places like Burma, Laos, Zimbabwe. You know, that's where tier works. So we do a lot of that internationally and then we do a lot of stuff in Australia which is the stuff that I look after which is we do a lot of education, uh, we do a lot of communication, a lot of advocacy. Um, so we believe that you know the way that we live here in Australia affects people's experience overseas. So the way that we um, live in terms of our impact environmentally affects the way that other people experience life overseas. And we believe that we need to speak up on behalf of the poor. Hey, So we at TIA believe that fundamentally it's not okay that the government are planning to slash $4.5 billion out of foreign aid 
We say that's not okay. And so one of the things that we do is we try to speak up and make noise. I loved your silence this morning, Shane. And, uh, and I encourage you all to carve out times of silence in your lives. I encourage you all to, t- to carve out times of making noise in your life as well, making noise on behalf of the poor. Uh, so one of the things we do is, is advocacy. So if you're also upset about the fact that the government are planning to slash $4.5 billion out of the foreign aid budget, if you're upset about the fact that we're shirking our international responsibilities and our international commitment of of GDP, Um, if you're upset about the fact that even the interim promise of 0.5, that the coalition aren't putting any time limits on that, so that that's not a promise at all, if they say, oh yeah, we'll get to 0.5 eventually, unless you put some time-bound commitments around, that's not a promise at all. If you're upset about that, then I, I ask you to make some noise on behalf of the poor. I ask you to write letters to your MPs, to get onto Facebook. If you go onto the tier Facebook, I'd ask you all to jump on and like it. In fact, you can do it now. Uh, the most interesting part of what I have to say is already gone. So, <laughs> so get onto the tier Facebook and like that, and there's some stuff that will help you share uh, and speak up and make some noise on behalf of the poor. So we do advocacy, um, and so you can find out more about that at, uh, at our tier Facebook page, which you should like on our, our web page. We've also got a... We've got a camp coming up, a gathering, um, which is going to be absolutely fantastic. It's coming up on the 4th to the 6th of October down at Phillip Island. So if you've uh, not seen the penguins and you love the poor, go down and kill two, kill two birds with one stone. That's probably not the right metaphor, is it? <laughs> That's the wrong metaphor for that. Uh, Anyway, there's going to be some great speakers down there. Um, Reverend uh, Kennedy, who's with one of our partners, Epicor, in India. Uh, Deborah Story, who's one of the best uh, Bible teachers going around. Uh, Ash Barker, who works with UNO and lives in a slum in Bangkok, are all going to be down there. Brochures are on the table. If you want to... uh, kind of go a bit deeper with Tear and your journey with Tear and, and also go a bit deeper with your journey of learning and understanding the poor, then I've left a few copies of this magazine, Target, um, just by the door there. Um, and I encourage you, if you wanted, to pick one up because it's, it's a, I think it's a beautiful publication and there's some really interesting things in there, yeah? So that's Tear. At the end, we'll have a bit of time, hopefully, for some questions, interactions. So if you've got any more questions, please let me know. But right now, what I'd like us to do is to jump into the Bible. So if you've got your Bibles, open them with me to Mark chapter 5, and uh, we're going to be looking from verse 21, Mark chapter 5 from verse 21, and if you've got your phones and you'd like to read off your phones, but really you're looking at Facebook, just be careful because we're going to cover that in a little bit. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Now, I'm just going to stop there for a moment. The way that Mark writes his gospel is, is fairly concise. Mark's gospel is probably the first gospel, and he, he uses very little information, and he, he gets to the point quite quickly. And so the fact that Mark is making a point of telling us this person's name tells us something. It tells us that this person, Jairus, is a very important man, and Mark wants us to know that this is an important man. Here is an important man who has a name worth mentioning. His name is Jairus, and he's a synagogue ruler. And Mark is making a point of saying, along comes an important man. 
Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there, important Jairus. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there. A woman. Here's a woman who has no name. She's not important. She's a woman without a name. As Jesus is on a journey to important Jairus' house. A man with a name. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she got worse. Here is a woman who had been who had, um, subject to bleeding for 12 years. Now I just want to pause there for a moment and just unpack a little bit about the reality that this woman was experiencing. It's easy for us to skip over. She had an issue of blood. She had been subject to bleeding. It's hard for us to really understand the, the real depths of the suffering that this woman was experiencing. If you turn to Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25, you begin to see the reality that this woman without a name was experiencing. Here's the laws. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time, other than, a, other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, as this woman had for 12 years, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge. Just as in the days of her period. Any bed she lies on while her discharge continues will be unclean, as is her bed during her monthly period. And anything she sits on will be unclean as during that period. And whoever touches them will be unclean. He must wash his clothes and bathe with water and he will be unclean till evening. So for 12 years, this woman has been literally an outcast. For 12 years, this woman has been deemed unclean. For 12 years, this woman, anything that she touches becomes unclean. Anything she sits on becomes unclean. It would have been impossible for this woman to function as, as part of society. She would have been kept on the margins. She would have been hated, ridiculed. People would deliberately stay away from her. She was unable to have any physical touch for 12 years. Do you know what it does to a person to not be able to be touched physically for 12 years? And so this woman, this, this, this outcast, this woman who's been on the fringes, on the margins of society, who hasn't been able to be touched for 12 years, breaks into this journey where Jesus is on his way to important Jairus' house. Do you know how old Jairus' daughter is? 12. So Mark is deliberately setting these two stories up against each other, isn't he? Here is a, a little girl who has lived a life of dignity, of wealth, of riches for 12 years in the house of important Jairus who has a name. And here's a woman who has no name, who hasn't been touched for 12 years. Everything she's sat on has been unclean. She is literally less than an animal in her culture. And she breaks into the story. Now, it's easy for us to think, isn't it wonderful that we have progressed past this horrible ancient era where women were treated in these disgusting and disgraceful ways. Isn't it wonderful that we have progressed as a society and that women no longer experience this kind of marginalization and segregation? Well, let me read to you a few things that may make us reconsider that. 
Today, women make up two-thirds of the world's illiterate population. They comprise two-thirds of the world's exploited informal workforce, slavery. Women, who make up roughly 50% of the world's population, own 1% of the world's resources. They earn one-tenth of the world's income. Isn't it wonderful that we have progressed to such a place where women occupy only 18% of seats in the world's parliament? 70% of the world's poor are women. 80% of the world's refugees are women and girls. And for women aged 15 to 44, gender-based violence accounts for more deaths and more disability than cancer, malaria, traffic accidents, and war combined. There was a fundamental problem then, and there is a fundamental problem now, that there is not gender equality in this world. That somehow, even though we are all created in the image of God, we're not treated equally in our experience of this world. And so this woman who has no name breaks into the story as Jesus is on his way to important Jairus' house. And she reaches out and she thinks, if I only touch his cloak, then I will be healed. And she reaches out and touches the cloak. And there's this strange verse where Jesus says that he felt some of the power go out of him. And he turns around and he says, who touched me? And the disciples say, well, you're being ridiculous. There's people everywhere. What do you mean who touched you? And he said, no, no, no. Something here is different. And the Bible says that the woman felt in that moment that she was healed. And Jesus turned around and said, who, who was it? And he, and he looks for this woman and he sees her. And then amongst this crowd, when he sees her, he does something absolutely beautiful he identifies something in her that nobody else had been able to identify he notices something about her that perhaps nobody else had noticed he calls something out of her that perhaps nobody else had called out and it evokes the memory of the very beginning of our story when God leans down into the dust and scoops the dust up and blows his Ruah breath into the dust and every one of us becomes the mixture of the material and the spiritual. We are the mixture of the dust and the divine and the image of God is planted on every single one of us, male and female, adult and child, slave and free, the image of God on every single one of us. And Jesus sees this woman and sees that the very image of the one that he calls Abba Father is on this woman. And he calls her daughter. And it's the only time in the scriptures that he calls anyone daughter. That's such intimate, intimate reference, daughter. And he calls this woman who has been disgraced, has been at arm's length, who's been the outcast, who's been the one that nobody could even touch. And he chooses her and he calls her daughter because he sees that the image of God is planted on every single one of us. And I believe 
that the greatest challenge to discipleship is for us to learn to be able to see the image of God planted on everyone. That is at the heart of what it means to be able to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's that that moves us from charity to justice. Charity says, I'll give some money to the poor because it's a good thing to do. It's a benevolent thing to do. Justice is, I will sacrifice for the poor because they are image bearers of God and they deserve justice. They deserve equality. To see the image of God planted on every single one of us is to cry when the roofs fall in on women who are making our t-shirts and 1,100 women die in Bangladesh. Why is it that in Turin, in Italy, there's a piece of cloth called the Shroud of Turin that some believe was perhaps wrapped around Jesus at the time of his resurrection and that in that moment of resurrection that there was perhaps a flash of light and the very image of Jesus is, is somehow printed on this material. Why is it that this material is seen as priceless because it may bear the image of Jesus, yet the image of Jesus, the image of God is printed on every single one of us and we throw lives away as if they count for nothing. The image of God is on every single one of us and we as disciples of Christ must learn to identify the image of Christ in every single one of us. It's to learn to love and to mourn for the broken, the lost, the poor, the marginalized is to see the image of God. Now, I think that there's a few reasons why we struggle to see the image of God printed on every single one of us. And so I want, what I want to do is I want to try, if we've got enough time, to throw up three reasons quite quickly why I think we struggle to see the image of God printed on the poor, the marginalized, our neighbor, the person at work who's really annoying. And then I deliberately want to maybe come up with some contradictory statements that actually might not sit well with each other. And if we've got a little bit of time at the end, we might be able to wrestle with which one is right and and how do we hold those things in tension, yeah? I think one of the reasons why we struggle to see the image of God printed on every single one of us is because fundamentally we fail to see it first and foremost in ourselves. We fail to believe that the image of God is actually printed on ourselves, that we are made in the image of God and therefore that we are generous, that we are productive, that we are creative, that we are compassionate because that is the way that God made us. And when God bent down and he blew his ruah dust, ruah breath into the dust and he made us, he made us good. He made us in his image. And we live in a world that perpetuates dissatisfaction, that continually tells us that we are not good enough, that we are not beautiful enough, that we are not clever enough, that we are not smart enough, we are not effective enough or creative enough. And if only you buy this product, then you can be more productive, more creative, more beautiful, more whatever it is. But whatever it is, you're not good enough now. And that distorts the image of God in each and every one of us. And then sometimes we find ourselves in religious institutions that cement that message, that reinforce that message, that say fundamentally you are a sinner, you are disgraceful, you are awful, you are nothing but a worm, except by the grace of God you should fall into the fire and the pit of hell. I think that starts the story a bit late. That starts the story at Genesis 3 after we sin. But the story starts, doesn't it, in Genesis 1 when God creates man and woman. He creates them equal and he says that they are good and they are beautiful and they are right and they are made in the image of God. You are much, much better than you think you are because you are made in the image of God. And you are beautiful, you are compassionate, you are loving, you are productive, you are all of those things. You are much better than you think you are. The voices inside of your head that say that you are rubbish, They are not the voices of the creator God who says, you are made in my image. 
And we label people, don't we? We say such and such is a liar, such and such is a gossip, such and such is a... You know, no, they're not. In a moment in which somebody lies, they are not a liar. They are not being who God created them to be. They're actually being less than who God created them to be. I am not a liar. When I lie, that doesn't actually create who I am. It's simply that I am being less than who I am. My wife's very good at reminding me of this. You know, whenever I say so-and-so is an idiot, which is not often, although occasionally, like not all that long ago, a friend of mine who was in a bridal party with one of my other best mates told the bride to F off on a wedding day, not smart. I come home, say so-and-so is an idiot. Ali says, no, he's not an idiot. He's beautiful, wonderful, compassionate, creative, productive. He was just being an idiot in the moment. But how true is that, isn't it? We need to stop labeling people. and We need to start seeing that we are beautifully, wonderfully created in the image of God. And until we can accept that about ourselves, we won't actually be able to see it in the face of other people. So you are much, much better than you think you are. Now, now that I've given you a hug and we all feel very good about ourselves, let me kick you in the stomach. One of the reasons why you fail to see the image of God in other people is because fundamentally you don't believe that all people are equal. Because actually you're not nearly as good as you think you are. Now, the reason you're not nearly as good as you think you are is this. Now, we all, a lot of us here will have Facebook and we're all very able to, to recognize the fact that actually we're not nearly as cool or as good as we think we are or we make out we are on Facebook. The reality is, if you look, like, we don't read that many Russian authors. We, we don't watch that many French films. The, the line that we made up that was meant to sound like it was an off-the-cuff joke, actually, we'd authored that for a day and a half. We, we don't have that many friends. We don't eat that much Instagram sushi. The reality is we are all able to recognize that Facebook is an idealized version of who we really are. Yeah, Facebook is an idealized version of our conscious self, right? We're all happy to admit that. Now here's where it gets trickier and here's the real punch in the guts. I wonder if our conscious selves are actually idealized versions of who we really are. What do I mean by that? I think I'm the kind of person who cares about the environment. I don't care about the environment. I just want to be the kind of person who cares about the environment. But if you look at the amount of time that I spend in the shower, if you look at the amount of time that I drive my car, if you look at the amount of stuff that I throw out, you can come to no other conclusion than I don't really believe that this earth is going to hell in a handbasket, which it is. Because fundamentally, what we believe has to be backed up by our actions. What we believe is actually, and Peter Rollins writes a lot about this, and I encourage you to read him if you want to go deeper into this. What he says is that what we believe has to be the sum total of our materiality. So it's what we spend our time on, what we spend our money on, what we, spend our, um, what we, what we think about, what we do in our relationships. All of those things are actually what we believe. As much as we want to kid ourselves and say that we believe this or we believe that, you have to look at what we do, what we spend our time on, what we spend our money on, all those sorts of things. So actually, and here's the real killer, we think that our actions fall short of our beliefs. Our actions don't fall short of our beliefs, says Peter Rollins. Our beliefs fall short of what we want our beliefs to be. And so I thought I was somebody who cared for the environment. I thought I was somebody who thought community was a good idea. And I thought I was a generous person. So I haven't come 
to kick all you guys in the guts. I'm happy to talk about myself for a moment. And if any of that resonates with you, then fine. I thought I cared about the environment, but when you look at my actions, you have to come to the conclusion that I don't. I thought I believed in community. If you looked at my actions, the amount of time I spent with other people, the amount of time I spent sharing my life with other people, you have to come to the conclusion that actually I believed I was fine on my own. I thought I was a generous person, but if you actually looked at my bank account and the amount of money that I gave away, you have to come to the conclusion that I actually believe I don't have enough. I'm not as good as I think I am. But like all recovery, the first step is admitting it. And then you can move on and you can begin to put steps together so I can begin to think and reflect on how I treat the environment. I can go and start to give some money away. And, it, and if, that's, if that's you, if you feel like you've got into a situation where you maybe thought you were generous, but when you actually look at what you do and your actual actions, you're not generous, I, I, I say just do a couple of small things to get yourself on the road, get yourself moving. Just start giving some money to the church. Start giving some money to the poor. I can recommend a great NGO that you can give some money to. You can... Um, and, the, and if you actually believe that community is important like me, you have to start to deliberately try and engage in community. Because on one level, we are so much better than we think we are. And on another level, we are nowhere near as good as we think we are. And so there's two reasons I think we struggle to engage with the, the image of God in other people. The last, the last one, and I'll, I'll talk about this very quickly so we can have some discussion, is I think actually technology has actually changed the way that we engage with the world and has actually really affected the way in which we're able to see the image of God in the other person. When Ellie and I, Ellie's from England, and we met here and she moved back to England, and so we were sort of dating, and, uh, and I say sort of dating, I mean we were absolutely dating. Babe, I had eyes only for you. It was all good. <laughs> we were definitely dating, and... Uh, yeah, okay, so... <laughs> Anyway, this was many, many, many years ago. And so back then, we felt very, very, very distant from each other because we had to do things like write actual letters like on paper and mail them in the actual mail. We made tapes, like mixtapes, like, you know, like love songs off the radio and like put them on a tape and actually mailed them to England. And then we did other crazy things like because we couldn't see each other because they only had telephones back then. I mean, we're talking nearly 10 years ago. And uh, we had to take like... Actual photographs? Does anyone remember? Well, you wouldn't remember them. You've all got Polaroid cameras. So we, it's like <laughs> flipping hipsters. Anyway, we take actual photographs of each other and mail them across the seas. And so you'd get a letter and you would write and you'd write a reply and send it back. Now, technology, as you know, has increased dramatically over the last 10 years. And what that has done is it's had the effect of bringing that which was very distant very near. So all those things that were far away now feel incredibly close, don't they? I can jump on Skype, I can jump on FaceTime, I can instant message, I can text, I can whatever. So suddenly the gap between England and Australia is very small. Technology has brought that which was very far away very near. It's also had the effect of often making that which is very near seem far away. Have you ever sat in a cafe and you're sitting across the table from somebody and they're supposed to be with you, engaging with you, communing with you, and they're texting a friend in the Ukraine and they're not paying any attention to you at all. So it brings that which is far near and it also can push that which is near far away. 
So the effect of that, if, if, it, if technology has brought that which is far away near, then suddenly in my pocket I have access to every story, every sadness, every destruction, every disaster known to the world. Now, the difficult thing is that my mind and my heart has not been created in such a way that I can literally take on the suffering of everybody around the world the suffering of everybody around the world is now readily available to me in my pocket there's a story that jesus tells about a man who's on the road to uh, jericho and he gets attacked by a bunch of robbers and a whole lot of religious people walk past well two religious people walk past him and don't help him and then a samaritan comes along some of you will have heard this story and helps him and, uh, and so you kind of get a sense from that story that Jesus is saying when you encounter suffering or hardship that we should respond through an act of compassion and love, yeah? So wherever it is that you encounter suffering, hardship, let's respond with a compassionate response. That's easy, isn't it, on the Jericho Road when there's one person lying in the ditch and you haven't seen any other people lying in the ditch that day. It's much harder when I take my phone out of my pocket and there is literally the suffering of the entire world in the palm of my hand. How do I respond to that suffering with compassion and with love and with mercy and with grace? How do I respond when I'm not walking along the Jericho Road, but every road in the world is fast-tracked to my pocket? I don't know. But what I do know is this, that it causes us, because our hearts and our minds are not big enough to be able to deal with all of that, it causes us to necessarily shut down and become numb. And what happens when we shut down and we become numb is that we begin to do nothing. Because how do you pick one thing out of all of those things? And it just gets easier to do nothing. And so my plea with you guys is to do one thing. Just start, just do one thing. Whatever it is, wherever it is that you find it, do one thing. It's a good start. It's a good start. There's a danger that it becomes the... Oh, no, there's, there's no danger of that. There's no danger of that. I was, we were going to do the whole Batman thing, but we're not going to do the Batman thing. We'll do the Batman thing another day. What we'll do now is we'll have some time for people to interact and ask questions or try and wrestle with this, this idea of is it that we are much better than we think we are? Is it that we're not nearly as good as we think we are? How do we wrestle with technology and the effect that that has on our, our ability to see the image of God. I don't know how you guys do, <clears throat> do it here. How do you do it? You just, someone just puts up their hand and says something brave. Go. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, I think what, I don't know if, I was probably supposed to take this microphone to you, so you're going to do that for me. Just, I'll just recap the question. The question was, and what was your name, sorry? Anna. The, the question from Anna was, we hear a lot about protesting and, and we're told that we should protest, but does protesting actually do anything? Um, because she feels like a lot of the time it doesn't. And I think I'll probably say a, a couple of things to that as a hypocrite who does very little protesting. Um, the first thing is, I'm not sure it matters a lot of the time 
what the end result is that there is a i think there's a symbolic and a and a spiritual and a important anti-empire kind of responsibility that we have um about standing up and uh and so i so part of me wants to take the the end result off the table completely and say well whether it does or it doesn't it doesn't matter um i just watched les mis this weekend so i'm a bit behind the, i'm a little bit behind i'm sure you've all seen it six times but if you haven't seen it literally go and buy it now don't even hire it buy it because you need to watch it a whole lot of times and uh and friday night i was tired and i was looking forward to getting home and having a bunch of beers and watching the footy and ellie calls up and she says oh good news i've hired les mis and i'm like oh <laughs> <laughs> wonderful and uh Anyway, no, literally, um, it, it is just brilliant. And there's this brilliant final scene, which I won't talk about, because if you haven't seen it, you just need to see it. And for me, that encapsulates so much of what it means to be the alternative politic and to stand up and, and protest. Having said all that, here's another reality. Protest does work. Um, it just does. So, for example, um, the, the Labor Party, when they were putting their budget together, they announced that they were going to cut foreign aid and divert a bunch of foreign aid and a whole lot of agencies through market challenge and others that you should all be involved in really lobbied the government hard and they didn't make that dramatic cut that they were promising and they said directly it was because of all the noise that was made through christians basically so well done to all of us christians who did that um and so we need to continue to protest is, is sort of my thoughts on that yeah yeah Yeah, that's a very good question. Should charity start at home or should we focus on the area of the most need? I guess the the charity starts at home phrase has been used quite a lot in reference to the coalition's $4.5 billion cut. Can I just say, this is I'm not slamming the coalition. I would be saying the same about any political party that I'm talking about the issue of foreign aid and I'd say the same about any political party that was going to cut foreign aid. The charity begins at home has been used a lot in reference to that. I, I think it's important that we remember that a lot of the cuts that are being made in terms of foreign aid, the money for that is actually going to go to stuff like building roads. Um, and that's just, that's the reality. And I think that there's also a real danger for us when we start to balance the books on the backs of the poor. Um, and so there can be a lot of quite, I think, sometimes cliched slogans get thrown around when there is a reality that, you know, the world's poor are dying. Um, and so I, I do have a sense that we do need to direct money to... I think that we live in a global world, in a global village, and that we have a global responsibility and that we need to direct money globally. Um, having said that, in order for us to be authentic as individuals, we need local expressions of, of justice as well, I think. So it's not a, an and or, it's a both and, but definitely we need to send money to the poor overseas. Yeah. Um, I just... I just wanted to validate um, what you talked about with keeping the money in and doing it. I think um, I really see two couples in the fact that we are more than we think we are sometimes and that taking baby steps is the only way to sustainable change. Um, and, um, and I also listened to you about the technology we 
Mm. Yeah, thank you. I, I couldn't agree more. Alex. Yeah, that's a really good question. It's a really good question, and and I, I want to try and avoid just saying yeah, but it's both. Um, um, I think I think there's a danger in, in both both ways. There's there are there are small things that we do sometimes that make us feel good about the rest of our lives. Um, this is where I was going to talk about. Batman and, and Batman basically Batman's in, he's a fool because he doesn't actually really want to he doesn't really want to fight crime um, in Gotham City because five days a week he's involved in an ammunition industry he's taking money from the poor sending it towards the rich all the rest of it actually if if Batman really wanted to deal with crime in Gotham City then he would do what he does and invest in in local community projects in education he'd invest in working with at-risk children and all the rest of it no no he just wants to fight crime on Saturday to make him feel good about how he lives for the rest of the week and there is a danger that we can slip into that as well in our response to the poor that we can send a little bit of money overseas to to people who are living with disability overseas and that helps us actually walk past the person with disability that's living on our street um, and in that sense it's a it's a Batman response and uh, it's the same you know we can have locally organically locally sourced tofu and that actually makes us not feel bad about the way that we're destroying the environment and the impact that's having on the rest of the world and so th there is a danger I agree with you Alex there's absolutely a danger that we can we can just get involved in some kind of tokenism um, overseas and then forget the person who's on the Jericho Road living next to us that we need to respond to. So we need to hold those two things in tension, I think, because we need to hold them in tension with the, it's good that you buy fair trade coffee and it's good that you buy locally sourced stuff and that is important. And so, you know, it's, it's a complex world. Is that anything to do with what you just talked to me about? Yeah. I don't think it would, I don't think it's probably helpful to forget about everything else, but I think it's a I think it's a beautiful and a wonderful thing that you're committed to, and that, um, that you should never be f made to feel bad about the fact that you can't respond to global poverty because you're a man of limited time and limited resources, and you're a man who is an example to us all in the way that you um, engage and respond to people of uh, of disability here in Australia. So um, I wouldn't be too hard on yourself. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. Justice issue no, you can't. around the world, but I can take um, you know a measure of comfort knowing that there are other people in the body doing that, and that's you know being empowered by the Holy Spirit and it's being mm. done really well. And that's what I love about being part of this community. Mm. That's beautifully said. That is that is one of the richness part of the richness of being part of the body of Christ, isn't it? That I can't do it all, but together. We're part of Jesus' redemptive plan, the global body of Christ. And that's partly why TIA works with local Christian agencies as well, because we, we see it as really important that we actually redistribute funds around the body of Christ to those who are most at need. Yeah. Um, would you agree that, uh, like, in a system of governance, the church tends to be... Um, a conscience to society rather than part of the state and I think we all tend to agree on that front but the church seems to have um, the church tends to have um, become dormant in its lobbyist activities Um, and would you agree that that's something that really needs to be stepped up um, with individual churches and with collective, with collective churches? I would certainly agree with you that it's something that needs to be stepped up. That will always be the case and that will always be part of, of what Tia is trying to say to the Christian community. I, I, where I may not agree with you is in when you said that, do I think that the church has become dormant? No, I don't. I think that there are beautiful, wonderful pockets and even bigger than pockets of the church who are doing beautiful wonderful prophetic things um you know all around the world who are protesting who are lobbying government who are looking after the poor i mean you look at most of the successful ngos around the world and most of them are christian based you look at you know the hospitals that have been built and all of the development work that has happened and it and it has been and continues to be through faithful christian people who are living out their faith um and so i I feel we should celebrate that um because it can be sometimes easy to get angry at the church, which I, as you know, have been more than guilty of myself. So, yeah. We're a um, very young and, to a large extent, quite happy community, partly because we don't know each other very well yet. Um, so we're looking to try and keep that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So if you make sure you keep moving tables and don't get past, um, how was your week? Uh, how, as a young forming community that, um, you know, has experienced a lot of flux in the last few years and is still really, um, it's slowly beginning to take shape and integrate. Um, what, what, what do we have or what practices would you encourage us towards in terms of actually helping us see how good each other are? Um, but also helping us see where we where we fall short. Like what um, what does this community have to offer to to itself? Jeez, Shane, I don't know. <laughs> maybe we maybe that's uh, that's something I need to take away and think about, and maybe we we have a coffee about. I mean, I've um, I used to lead a community that's no longer there, so I'm uh, <laughs> I'm not the person. So leave? Be asking. Is it, What's that? It's just just all leave. It's just. 
We'll, we'll leave. Is that? Yeah, just leave. Yeah, cool. Great. Just all leave. Don't it was leave. nice knowing you guys. Um, you know, in terms of practices that, that help see how beautiful each one of you are, I think that I think from what I've seen and the, the little that I've seen, you have a wonderful sense of being able to be open and vulnerable and that you, you make a lot of efforts uh, um, to, to tear away the masks and the curtains and, uh, and I would encourage you to keep doing that. Um, but I would encourage you in that because it's a beautiful community and because as a community um, you're so much better than you think you are to remember that you're also nowhere near as good as you think you are either um, and you're not nearly as generous as you should be and you're not nearly as loving and compassionate and as you should be and you're not communing with each other as much as you should be. Um, so hold those two things together um, and I think part of being honest and vulnerable is to maybe allow people to speak openly about that and to remind ourselves as a community, I mean yourselves as a community, um, those things and, and not to, maybe not to get too upset about it, hey, because it's it's the truth. In terms of practices, I don't know. I'll get back to you. There was one over there as well. Hi, my name's Ben. Um, Hi, Ben. I'm a bit nervous because I'm going to present an unpopular view, <coughs> um, ask a question in the sense that uh, uh, I'm unpo- it's an unpopular because it's, it's, uh, it's not necessarily my opinion, um, but I want to challenge this idea that, um, uh, or the question is, is it the government's responsibility to, in terms of this discussion around the $4.6 billion yeah. of cut to aid, um, is it the government's responsibility to actually um, give to, to world aid or um, does that defer, I guess, our individual responsibility uh, in terms of are we, defer- are we at risk at deferring our responsibility um, by sort of holding the government accountable? Uh, and finally, in the sense that uh, the government actually generously uh, gives tax deductions to us to give money to uh, international aid and non-government organisations. Um, so, yeah, I know that's probably a really kind of stirring the pot kind of question. Yeah. Uh, me personally, I, I, I have my own personal view, but I'd be interested to see sort of, you know, what's, what, how do we take that kind of yeah. view? So- and, and I, I know, maybe we'll talk about more later on. I'll just go into it very quickly. I, yes, I do absolutely unequivocally believe that it is the government's responsibility. It's the government's responsibility, first and foremost, because they said it was, because the government have signed on to certain commitments, 0.7 of GDP um, and those sort of things. It's the government's responsibility because the government sets up systems that actually perpetuate poverty in certain countries. They allow certain tax breaks and various tax situations that, that actually cost countries more than we give to them in aid. They're involved in various ammunitions trading that um, does all that. So because they're so intricately involved in that system, I believe that they need to be just as responsible in the way that they actually allocate their resources and allocate them towards the poor. Yes, there is a danger, therefore, that we no longer give to the poor because we think it's only the government's responsibility, but it's our responsibility as Christians if we believe that everybody's created in the image of God, it's an issue of justice, that it isn't right that there are women living in those situations and that we're living in those. Somehow we have to push towards equality and that has to start with the sharing of resources, however that looks. So. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. No worries.
I think Sally. Is it Sally? Yeah. Sally, we've never met, but I have been um, reading um, the news in the newspaper and I've been praying for you. And, uh, and I'm sure many people around have been. So. Um, the people that I struggle to see the image of God on are the mugs who pick up the women who we work with in the streets, um, Adrian Bailey, and thank you so much for bringing up gender equality, that was um, really powerful, um, or, you know, the person who sends you an abusive email or someone who cuts you off on the road. Um, is there a point where it is impossible as a human being to see uh, someone else in that context as having the image of God on them and we just need to surrender and... Um, only through God's love for us can we possibly see his image in other people. Um, or, you know, Rupert Murdoch or, you know, certain politicians yeah. or, you know, it's, it's turning it and so it's not just the poor who we struggle with but sometimes it's um, the wealthy and the aggressive. Yeah. yeah, look, that's a great question and I don't have an answer and I just want to... I, I want to compound your quandary a little bit and say that I, I've wrestled with the same thing and... Um, and uh, and was wrestling with it um, a couple of weeks. Last weekend with the election, I was handing out independent vote cards that kind of ranked the, the, the issues that matter. And I was stood next to a political party, and I won't say who they were, but I, I believe this party to be incredibly racist and incredibly hateful and spiteful. And was having that exact same conversation with myself. And, and what made that conversation even more difficult for me was... <laughs> was I ever able to come to a point where I saw the image of God in, the, in a way that wasn't patronizing? Because it's easy to see it in a way that's actually patronizing to them, where I'm still seeing myself as so much better than them and so much more enlightened and progressive and wonderful. Is there ever a time in which I, I, I'm able to try and see the image of God in, them in such a way that there is even something I can learn from them? And I don't know. I know that that's something I want. I know that's something God wants. Um, in last Saturday, I was so far away from being able to do that. It was just ridiculous. Um, because often, we can, we can, when we talk about this, we can actually set ourselves up in quite a, a patriarchal, patronizing situation where it's like, oh, I, I pity them. But everybody is a victim of um, unjust systems um, and influences that have happened in their lives. We don't know what they are that have caused them to be who they are, but even seeing them purely as victims can still be patronising. So, I'm sorry, Sally, I got nothing. So. This is the last one. Okay. Um, I've, I worked in Zambia for a little while and, and um, had the chance to work with a community that had built themselves up to the point where they said no to some aid that they'd been offered um, because they'd had that sort of inner strength to, to, to resolve their own issues and it was pretty special to see that and then also another community that I'd spoken to who on the other hand um, were, were quite receptive and, and had their hands out for aid but what was with how they spoke was in a helpless um, dependent um, sort of you know we can't do it um, manner and I wondered how and I, I guess that's locally in Australia too when, when you're talking to different people in different ways um, how, how do we work towards loving and giving in a helpful way 
Yeah. Mm. I mean, look, what's your name, sorry? Peter. Peter. It sounds to me, Peter, like you probably know a lot more about this than I do, having worked in those communities for however long it was that you did. But what you touch on is a really important point, and that is that we don't, we don't want to, when we talk about aid, we don't want to be charity, we don't want to be just handing stuff out. We actually, and that's why TIA works with Indigenous local communities, because it has to be self-directed by these communities. It has to be what they want, how they want it. Um, and it's in that sense, it's actually, the, it's actually the process of the development itself rather than the outcome that is most important because you'll normally find that when people go through a, an effective and a healthy process of community development, they may end up with a whole bunch of toilets at the end, but what they really end up with is a fully functioning community that can then go on and sustain itself and flourish into the long term. And the toilets, the project of the toilets that TIA helped to fund, that was just really setting up the process that helps them to do that kind of development. So that's, that's really important. Where just handing out aid or charity can actually be paternalistic and, and, and quite destructive sometimes. So, yeah, so thanks for that. Great. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for having me. Thank you for letting me get back in the saddle. Sorry, I was a bit of a sook there at the start, but yeah. Uh, you weren't the only one having a cry, Paul. Um, those uh, gender stuff at the beginning just really deeply moved me. Um, I hope it's not another 12 months before you preach, Paul. Um, that was outstanding. And I'm, I sense that uh, what Paul shared with us this morning wasn't just uh, a fill-in message for us to hear, but there was a the weight of God in the words that um, that. Paul brought to us this morning that we as a community need to really unpack and, um, uh, you know, just to the top, top of my head, I think it would be really important for us to create a group of people that, um, that process uh, what Paul has shared with us this morning. Uh, how do we as a community engage uh, with the poor? What do we do with our resource and, and our money? And I kind of flagged something last Sunday around the whole idea of creating an alternative uh, economy. Um, what does that look like for us um, as, a, as a community? So, Paul, thank you so much. That's profound and, and, and so deeply appreciate your, 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 your message this morning. Yeah. They put some really good programs. Yeah. They're Christmas card programs. Where you can buy something for $40 or $50 or something. You can see what it is. Yeah. You're really doing something. It's, uh, you're doing one thing and then facilitating that so anybody can do one thing. Yeah. Fantastic. There you go, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> He's on a. Yeah. Alistair's on a commission, I know. It's. Uh, <laughs> there is uh, the, the tier. Uh, stand there with some uh, information. I'm sure Paul will hang around and have a chat with you afterwards. And also, not forgetting uh, Shane, uh, maybe so you could meet down. Yeah. Yeah, sounds cool. Let's all stand as a community, as a people, and let's uh, close our service this morning with, uh, with a benediction, with a good word. For all you poets and creatives, um, it would be really nice for, for you to... Uh, write uh, some benedictions for us as well. So that just throw that out. And a few songwriters to um, 
maybe he's worked with the poets and we could have some sung benedictions. The word benediction means a good word. And so let's close on a good word. Loving Father, we thank you for receiving our worship, hearing our prayers, feeding us with your word, and encouraging us in our fellowship. As we leave this place, take us and use us to love and serve you and all people in the power of your spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord.